Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, which, by the way, has some new formatting and music. I hope you like it. Today, we are lucky enough to speak with Jasmine Nahas de Florio. Jasmine is the Senior Vice President for Strategy and Partnerships for the Education for Employment. The Education for Employment is the leading nonprofit that trains youth and links them to jobs across the Middle East and Northern Africa. This pivotal region is the hardest place on the planet for youth to get their first job. They are three times more likely to be unemployed than other adults. Jasmine and the EFE are using major corporate support and local partnerships to inject hope in a region where unemployment and economic opportunity are significant barriers to progress. Welcome aboard, Jasmine. Thank you, Fraser. Happy to be here. For anybody who hasn't read your background, it's certainly impressive. It's tough to summarize, so maybe I'll let you try to do it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I'll keep it brief and hopefully relevant to EFE. So I really grew up between two worlds. I I feel I was lucky to be in a place where hard work opened the door to opportunity. I became a Rhodes Scholar, Fulbright Scholar, and Harvard-trained lawyer. And yet I spent summers in the Middle East, and all around me I saw young people who were just as smart but were shut out because they were poor or female. Luckily, I was raised by parents in a country you know, based on meritocracy, and they really believed that women should have the choice to work. And they also hosted refugees from many countries in our home. And I think all of that was really the genesis of my journey to join EFE after a career as a lawyer in both government and a law firm. Well, I'll tell you what, if I ever needed anything to make me feel more dumb and useless, all I have to do is read your biography because it's impressive. And we've met a bunch of times now and it really comes out. How did EFE come about and how did you become associated with it? We know that EFE was really sort of the brainchild of Ron Bruder. Maybe take us through the story of that and how he came about and then how you got integrated with this. Sure. So Ron Bruder's story is really extraordinary. He's a self-made entrepreneur from Brooklyn. Student loans got him through college and then he started businesses on the side when he was still an undergraduate before becoming a very successful entrepreneur. Fast forward many decades after September 11th, Ron really paused to see what he could do to build bridges to the Middle East and improve relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East as one individual. He got on airplanes. He traveled from Afghanistan to Yemen, spent a lot of time in the region talking to youth, talking to business leaders and government. And he found that youth unemployment is the key to stability and the future of the region. I mean, just like anywhere in the world, jobs are dignity and youth without jobs is a crisis scenario. He ultimately founded EFE, and he was actually named a Time 100 Person of the Year for doing that. He's really dedicated the past 15 years full-time to the mission, really turning over management of his company to its president. Where I came in is, as I mentioned, after practicing law and government in a law firm for many years, I really joined Ron at the startup with the initial board because I just share that belief that young people everywhere deserve the opportunity to access the dignity, hope, and inclusion that a job can bring. There's a saying that talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And I think it's especially true in the Middle East and North Africa. And it's a pivotal region. It matters to all of us that young people there feel they have a bright future and that they feel invested in their countries. Just a quick story. EFE really launched our very first project 13 years ago. Samar Khoury, who runs CCC, it's the largest construction company in the Middle East, was EFE's first employer partner and and private funder. He still supports EFE and serves on our board. 
to launch the first program with CCC, I actually walked through the tunnels and checkpoints in Gaza. We had jobs lined up through CCC. We had funding in place, and we had a local university trained on international best practices and work-relevant content. So I was surprised that we initially had a hard time getting unemployed youth to sign up for the training. This was in Gaza. It turned out that they had so much training fatigue and so many empty promises that they didn't actually believe that we were going to follow through and deliver jobs. We got them in the program and we had 100% job placement. So after that, EFE really grew exponentially to become the leading nonprofit that actually places youth in jobs or self-employment across the region in partnership with 3,000 employers. And just this month, we celebrated the 100,000th graduate who began her first job as a coder in Morocco, breaking into a pretty male-dominated tech world over there. Oh, what an impact. I mean, it's important work that you're doing. We watch the news, and I think it's probably the general intuition that the economic situations in many parts of the Middle East and North Africa are desperate. The jobs aren't there. It's tough to tell what the industry is. How does this relate to the problems that EFE tries to solve? The context is this region is the hardest place on the planet for young people to get a job. As you said, Fraser, nearly 30% of youth are unemployed. And this region also has the highest youth population in the world. 60% of people are under the age of 25. And then compounding this jobs crisis is the tragedy of the educated unemployed. If you're a young person in the Middle East and you have a university degree, you're twice as likely to be unemployed. So education does not lead to employment in this region. And then finding a job is even harder for women. The region has the world's lowest participation of women in the labor market, in the formal labor market. In some countries like Yemen, only about 12% of women are in the formal workforce. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for the severe job crisis. Foreign direct investment is not attracted to conflict zones. Even politically stable countries don't have economies that are producing enough jobs, in large part because they lack an ecosystem for entrepreneurship, though the UAE is a bright exception. And really across the board, there's a mismatch between what the education systems teach and then the skills that are in demand by the private sector. And this gap, this skills gap, is actually widening with the digital revolution. Arab youth are massive tech consumers. Actually, in some countries in the Gulf, there's over 100% of people using cell phones and online, but they're not tech producers. So the skills that are being taught are not sufficient for the jobs of tomorrow. I was just speaking with a someone who runs an Arab tech company and he's actually forced to recruit from San Francisco instead of his home country for artificial intelligence engineers, despite millions of young people who are unemployed right in his home country. That would seem to be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> You're going cross-border and so on. The idea here that promoting and encouraging and implementing employment in the youth in the area seemed to be a widely supported goal and something that almost everyone can agree upon. But what are the challenges in addressing this across the region? So one of the first things is that it's a very diverse region. We often talk about the Middle East and North Africa as one block, but it's actually incredibly diverse. The economies, the security situation, the political situation, and also cultural norms. And these can vary even within a country from cities to rural areas. But I'd say there are some common challenges. Overall, it's going to be no surprise that it's volatile and uncertain. EFE created a strategic plan with generous pro bono support from Bain, but it's really hard to predict change in the region, including what sectors will grow. I mean, for example, we know the tourism sector in some of these countries has the potential to employ millions of people through hotels and restaurants and transportation, but it can take one event 
to effectively shut down tourism for years and all those jobs go away. Another challenge we see is that many of the job openings that actually do come up are at small and medium-sized enterprises. Just like in the United States, the vast majority of new jobs are formed by SMEs. But the SMEs have virtually no recruiting or training budget. They tend to hire one to two people at a time, so it's hard for us to fill a class and place 25 youth. And often they're family-run companies that prefer to hire a family member. And what we see is that many young people, especially women, are searching for jobs at international companies because they and their parents think that they offer a higher salary and a fairer work environment, but that's not where the jobs are. There are a couple more challenges. One is really relevant to women. In fact, it's a whole range of scenarios for women. So one might think at first that it's because of employer discrimination that you've got 70 to 80% unemployment among women. And there is some of that, but there's also... A lot of other issues, unreliable and unsafe public transportation, lack of daycare, harassment in the workforce where laws either don't exist or they're simply not enforced. And I was really surprised to learn that in Jordan, the school curriculum teaches that women working outside the home could lead to divorce in the family. So that makes it really hard for women to graduate actually wanting to work in Jordan. And when women do choose to work in the formal labor market and overcome all of these barriers, many employers, especially multinationals, really appreciate them because they're either seeking gender diversity or they just see that a woman who's determined to succeed in the workforce and who's overcome those obstacles can do miracles. I just want to briefly share an example because I think it really brings it to life. A young woman in our program named Hazad, she's a graduate from Palestine. So her first barrier was being free to choose her course of study. It was unheard of to be a nurse as a woman in her conservative village. Most of the nurses are men because night shifts and mixing with men. But her father and mother were both fierce advocates for her and wanted her to choose her study. She did. She became one of the first women in her village to graduate with a nursing degree. Her next big barrier was to break into the world of work. So she searched for a long time, could not get a job found EFE, and got her job placement at a hospital. Then when she was finally at work in a hospital, a male patient one night berated her asking, how could your family let you study nursing and stay out all hours of the night? And she responded, which I think is extraordinary, if I didn't work, who would help your daughter when you refuse to let her be seen by a male nurse or a male doctor? And this man actually apologized And now several other women in her village are following her footsteps and enrolling in our nursing program. So I think that's incredible. That's just one story. And it shows you not only the obstacles they're overcoming and the commitment they have, but that it's a role model for others who will then follow. What a powerful and important example. It's that type of work that I think that the organization makes it so important. You talked a lot about the challenges. What are the different options for programs that you have? And what are the things that the kids and the youth can access to help better their lives? So EFE has three main programs. The core model is the job placement, which is very distinctive in the region because it goes beyond the training alone. If you remember the youth in Gaza who just didn't believe that there'd be anything after the training, that's because that's what most programs offer. So we really want to make sure it's linked to jobs. Within that jobs program, there's actually three really important elements. So first, we need to really build confidence and provide skills that are actually in demand by the private sector, not being taught by the education system in order to address the skills mismatch. What we find is that youth who are excluded have a better shot 
if they have skills and demand and they can develop that confidence. But it's more than a skills gap. I mean, it's not teach them English, teach them coding, and they'll get a job. There's also what we call an opportunity gap. Youth don't have the social capital or the networks to get their foot in the door with employers. And we all know that networks are really important to getting a job. So we work on that, we work on the mindset and attitudes of the youth as well, that their first job may not be their dream job, that they're not going to become a manager on day one. And so it's really important to work on that mindset as well. And then finally, we overcome some of the barriers that I mentioned that are specific to women. We run campaigns in the press, on social media to overcome the stigma of jobs in hospitality and nursing. We do anti-harassment training. And also we get the success stories out like Hazars in the media to inspire their peers. So all of that is part of our core jobs program. And the second program we have, we call Pathways. It's for the segment of youth who have pretty good skills that are work relevant, but they don't actually know how to look for a job, how to match their aspirations and skills to jobs out there and how to prepare their CV and interview. So we provide a program we called finding a job as a job and we typically do this in partnership with vocational training institutions and universities before they graduate and become unemployed we've also run this at starbucks cafes helping them turn their cafes into opportunity cafes in saudi arabia egypt jordan and morocco then the third program is entrepreneurship and within entrepreneurship our niche is self-employment so it's sort of getting that first business up and running and it's especially important for women who can work from their own homes, and in, in particular, Syrian refugee women. And there's one Fraser who really stands out for me. Her name is Hiba. She came to our program. She had earned a university degree in IT and architecture in Syria and was forced to flee. She said with her family, they had no job and no money. When she finally got to Jordan, she searched for work for seven months and said that people were treating her with suspicion because she was a foreigner and, and looking to take one of their jobs. It took a big toll on her self-esteem. Eventually, she found EFE's program. She learned how to start up a business. And today, she runs an artisanal soap and wax studio. And life has completely changed for her. She's self-confident. She contributes as much to her family's household as her brother does. And she said she feels trusted by her host community. So I just think that's an example of what self-employment can do and the sort of niche it can fill in regions that might be in the interior of countries where there just simply are no jobs, or for women like Hiba, who it's very difficult for them to leave their homes. All of these examples are amazing and powerful, and you have so many of them. You graduated the 100,000th person through the program. All of this takes resources and money. Can you tell us a little bit about how the private sector is helping and where these resources come from? Absolutely. So the private sector is really the engine of EFE. I mean, EFE is a bridge between the private sector, the youth, and education systems. So we partner with, as I mentioned, 3,000 employers, and that's what makes it possible for us to deliver tangible outcomes to youth, the actual job. It's the cornerstone of our demand-driven model that's really unique in the region. We also work with companies who provide corporate social responsibility, social impact awards and grants. A number of companies like City Foundation, Accenture, J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, Boeing, Western Union Foundation, and Hyatt have given us funding to just really pay for the training and, and the job placement work. And then we also work with the private sector as volunteers. Just the past year, a million dollars in pro bono support from strategy advisors like Bain and Daggerwing, 
from media companies like Middle East Broadcasting Corp and many law firms provide us with extraordinary volunteering support. Right now we're working with a a film producer based in Los Angeles, Kevin Matosian, who's giving us a lot of time to figure out how to capture many of these stories on film. And so really the private sector is the cornerstone of our model and we could do nothing without their generosity on the one hand, but also their bottom line hiring needs as an HR initiative. So as we come out of the sort of a scenario where you have so many different things that you want to do, and there's many different points and areas where you can have an impact, how do you select your initiatives and maybe describe some successes or how do you evaluate the effectiveness of your programs? So the key decisions are made locally by our affiliates, by let's say EFE Egypt or EFE Jordan, which companies they work with, which government agencies they partner with. Which particular skill set to teach youth? Is it coding? Is it being a chef? Even which parts of a country to offer services in? And then the mix between their target programs, job training versus entrepreneurship. All those key decisions are made locally. And that's actually one of the strengths of EFE and the keys to our success is that we don't adopt a typical model of trying to run everything through U.S. headquarters. It's really an integrated network of locally run nonprofits in each country with a CEO and a board and a staff from that country who make those kinds of decisions. And then our international team supports that in various ways from fundraising to communications to coordinating on overall strategy and monitoring evaluation and building the systems and the technology backbone for the network. So that's a little bit how it works on the ground. When it comes to new country expansion, there's always a lot of questions and we finally resolved in our 2020 strategy to stay in the Middle East, North Africa region. And looking forward, we'll revisit that. But that's a little bit opportunistic. So for example, a few weeks after the Tunisian revolution that sparked off the Arab Spring, we got a call from the US embassy in Tunisia that said, we heard about EFE from the US embassies in neighboring countries. We know you're successful. We need EFE here. Literally, they said the revolution happened because young people don't have the dignity and the inclusion of jobs. And within two months, we were on the ground in Tunisia and started an operation there that's now very successful. And we actually went in with a programming mix of 50% entrepreneurship and 50% job placement because that is a country with a pretty small economy, mostly family-run SMEs. And so the entrepreneurship piece was critical. And that is because Tunisians who joined our board there told us that was a strategy that would work. And so that's what we did. So that is sort of how we choose how we go about what we do. Maybe just to follow up a little bit on a comment you made as you were going through your 2020 strategy, you sort of, I guess, maybe reaffirmed your focus to the Middle East. How did you come about that? decision? Is that just a function of continue to do what you do well, maybe just a little early to try to sort of move programs beyond that focus? What was the thought process there? Yeah, it was a difficult one. And we didn't get clarity until we really discussed it with our entire network. But we had been getting emails and calls for a couple of years, literally from Madagascar to Kashmir to Pakistan, India, Chad, all over the world, Indonesia, really a lot of times by young people saying, we've heard about this, I want to start this in my country, how do I do it? And so it really got us thinking about what can we do elsewhere. And what we found is that really our, we were sort of a 10 years, 10, 12 years startup mode. And we thought that we have economies of scale in this region. A lot of the companies we work with work across the region. And it just felt like we needed to 
become very successful where we are and build a very strong model. And then in the future, we'd be prepared to expand out. And there also are a lot of great nonprofits doing this work in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. And so often we'd refer people to those organizations and decide to build on our strengths in the region where we're really unique and making a big difference. But it was a hard decision. So as you're looking forward to 2020 and beyond, what are you focused on? Describe the programs and the need to be sure. Is there anything specific that's part of the strategy that you haven't mentioned before? Yes. So as we look forward, we're focusing increasingly on innovation. It's a very fast changing world now, particularly now with the digital economies. We're looking at what are the future skills or future proof skills that if you acquire them, you can sort of be prepared for any of the jobs coming down the road. A lot of those, surprisingly, are actually not technical skills. They're the so-called soft skills, like customer service, communication, problem solving. Those sorts of skills are key, and they're across all of our organization. But we want to do more of that. We want to focus more on innovation, like VR training and other online components to blend the classroom training with digital. We're also working more and more on systems change with universities and career counseling centers to really embed the model into their current program so that local academic institutions take more ownership over supporting their graduates transition into the world of work. We're also intensifying our work with alumni, with graduates who are acting as ambassadors, who are talking about our work on social media, traveling around the world, sharing their own stories, media outreach, social media campaigns, to really try to overcome the stereotypes of youth in the region and to show the world and each other the potential that young people have and what they really can do. And some of the stories are incredible. I mean, one other one, a young man named Ahmed Sakhar in in Egypt, I mean, he was literally uh, picking cotton in a rural town and decided that he wanted more and needed to help his parents. And he really learned English on the internet and learned tech skills himself and ended up going to Cairo and selling clothes in the street to survive. He found our program, and fast forward, he got a job at Souk.com, which is the desert unicorn e-retailer that was acquired by Amazon. So he got a tech-savvy job. And then over time, he was able to rise through the ranks and ultimately live the Arab dream, which is to go to Dubai, where he is now. So we want them to tell their own stories and inspire other young people like them and inspire more hope in the region. The other forward-looking strategy is we do want to expand to additional countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And we're looking at our financial sustainability model. Part of our strategy is to increase cost share with employer partners by showing them the specific ROI that they're saving time and money in recruitment and training and lower turnover because these youth are opportunity youth. They're loyal. They know they've been given a chance and they stay longer. And then the last thing I would say on that is we're getting more involved with impact investing So our affiliates in Jordan, Morocco, and Palestine are among the first in the region to pioneer a pay-for-performance model in youth employment. And just last week, the first Palestine Employment Development Impact Bond was launched, and EFE Palestine is an implementer. So we do want to look at this field and see how we can stay engaged and do more work in impact investing. Terrific. You're a busy woman. Uh, (laughs) I guess, how do we best keep up with EFE? And for those people who want to learn more about it, get involved, especially stateside, what's the best way to stay in touch? Fraser, thank you so much for this conversation. This helps get the word out and would really love to hear from anyone. I'm on LinkedIn. 
people can also visit our website, www.efe.org. And there are a lot of social media links there, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, to stay in touch with what we're doing. And for listeners, I'll have that information on the podcast website as well, so you'll be able to check it out there. Jasmine, before we leave here, I'd like to start something new that I haven't really done with many of my guests, but maybe asking a fun question. What do you like to do in your spare time? You're so busy and you're having such an amazing impact. What do you do to enjoy yourself? In my spare time, I do make some attempt to see my children. Got some young kids, so spend a lot of time with them. I love running in Central Park. It makes me very happy, and it's actually where some of my most creative thinking takes place. And I enjoy traveling, traveling to the region where I work and traveling to many other locations as well. Oh, terrific. Jasmine, thanks so much for being on, and good luck to you and EFE, and keep doing the good work that you do. Fraser, thank you. And I do want to add, I loved your book. Wealth Actually was funny and smart, and I learned a lot. And thank you for writing that and for having me on today. Well, appreciate it, and thanks for the nice words. You've been listening to Jasmine Nahas Florio, Senior Vice President for Strategy and Partnerships for Education for Employment. I hope you've enjoyed the new format, and keep an eye out for more content on WealthActually.com and FraserRice.com. Thanks again, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.